back up. Uh, I don't know when, but I looked at it this morning. So.
she's here. She walked in. She just hasn't made it in the room yet.
I'm mildly alarmed. <laughs> mildly is fine. You don't have any other rhythm section close. No.
From 2 to 3, and then open, uh, it's Mondays by appointment, correct? Um, and there is a website, which I don't know, and if you need that information, you can. It's, on, it's actually on the church website. There's a link at the top that says New Heights Pantry. Oh, nice. Um, and if somebody wants the link for that, they can text NH Pantry to our texting number, and it will send them the link. Perfect. All right. So those, um, and keep in mind when we do, uh, when we have our prayer this morning, those that are sick and those that are traveling, um, but we're not going to make this too long, so we're going to get right down to it. So Mr. Josh, will you open us up and, no? What? Do I know he's still. Okay. <laughs> All right, Ricky, will you open us up in prayer, please? Woo! Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the time that we have to share together in your word. Uh, pray those who are sick get your healing hand.
All right, so let me ask you today how the Lord has been speaking to you. What have you seen in his word? What have you seen that you've been out and about? I've been very encouraged this week, actually, by a number of brothers who I am friends with on Facebook sharing uh, some pretty significant things, the things that I was already thinking about, but the Lord was like speaking to me, and then they shared it. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what God seemed to be saying. So I was pretty encouraged. I know God is speaking, especially in this day, and uh, encouraging us to stand up in this day of evil. And so um, I would share, so I'll let you share. What have you heard from the Lord in the last seven days that you'd like to share? Brother Tony Kate. Um, this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 8 through 11. I think it'll be my fight for the rest of my life. Because it just says this. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. And now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. Stop right there. And so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance. It leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern. What readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in the man. And so when, you know, I've always said this, and, you know, when I'm saying something, I start to think, you know, like people think I'm talking about them, but I really think the mirror's on all of us. And I think we're talking to everybody. So if you, yeah. you feel like I'm sharing something, like, why are you talking to me? Maybe God is taking that to you. And, and it takes time, but let God talk to you. Maybe God's speaking through us at some times. But I just, this is what the Lord kind of laid in my heart. And I'm trying to be quick. Lord, just make my words quick. If you want to talk to me sometime, I have a longer conversation. Um, just pray for me. I really think the Lord just kind of want me to start a YouTube channel. And I just I just think I just want to get the word out there. I want to get out something I really believe is valuable for the church. And so um, I was going to say this real quick. When I was a Christian, I was 23 years old. I was sharing the gospel. I was praying for salvation. I was sincere about it. I knew that Christ came to life, but I was never the same. And then for two more years, you know, I never went anywhere except the Catholic Church. And I'm not against Catholic Church. If the Word of God is being presented, the, the true nature of who God is and all that, that's really there, which I believe there are Catholic churches who can have it. But regardless, I used to tell them all the time, I would say, you know, I'm a Catholic, but I'm a Christian at heart. I knew there was something different about me that they couldn't, they couldn't give me anything. So two years later, I finally went to a church that when I saw people clapping and I'm not going to name churches because I can say all the churches don't have it all together. But clapping and worshiping God, and it's so cool. And, and at like every 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 Sunday I would go and usher and pray for people and hear this is the first relationship with God. This is the first relationship with God. You know, and I'm just I'm just going through the motions. I'm loving this. And you know, and I finally felt like the Lord told me to leave this church, and I did. And so I just thought everybody that was Christian was Christian. I'm I'm from a small town, I'm naive and gullible. And you can use this on Ephesians, your chapter 3 or chapter 4, I get confused, but that you're being swayed back and forth. You know, you, the, the cunning, deceptive philosophies and theologies, that's in Colossians chapter 3, you know, or 2, I mean, and all those things will sway you back and forth. And so I'll, in a long shot, I went to another one, you know, which I renounced and repented for. 
I would say fake theology or, or fake worship, false worship, and um, I'm trying to be fast and quick. I love this. I heard this the other day, and I totally agree. If you agree with me, just say amen in your heart. But God will never compromise his holiness to demonstrate his love. Christ Jesus, when people say God is love, it's because he was holy. Christ Jesus sacrificed at the cross. His birth, his sinless walk, death, resurrection, rapture, return, all of that proves his holiness. And we shall not compromise our holiness to demonstrate love, but we are. We're all going to be there. We're, every one of us is going to compromise sooner or later. So I was on the side of compromise and conformity, and then... There's the other side where I was in rebelliousness and self-righteousness. And I could throw all these things out. The idea was going this way and going back this way and going this way and that way. I couldn't find a foundation in Christ Jesus again. You know, I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the minister of the word. I'm thankful for another church. But when I finally got my foundation back on, and you should look this up yourself, and just a couple things I want to tell you real quick. The more we keep compromising truth, you can look it up right now. Any NIV Bible is made. I'm not here to make fun of anyone. You can look it up for yourself. They're taking verses and they're putting them in footnotes. They're saying this verse, you know, is down here now because we don't know if that truly was. It's an older manuscript, but it's not one of the newer manuscripts. And one of them is, is seek and save what was lost. They're trying to make people think that the relationship with God that nobody's lost. That, that anyone, you know, it can, can be found in Christ. But they have to know they're sinners. They're trying to take that away. Slowly and slowly, they're taking away our truth. They're taking away our hope. They're taking away our love. But the one thing they can't take away, every Christian remembers, the one thing they can't take away is the foundation that was set in Christ Jesus. That from, from even today, the sweeping back and forth, and I'm just saying, I really thought I was supposed to be a preacher, a pastor, or whatever. I, I don't know, but I've been so messed up going back and forth that if anything, I'm going to be an evangelist. I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to get there. But if, if you go that way, back and forth, it'll mess you up in the long run, physically, mentally, socially, and spiritually. But it didn't mess up the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me. It doesn't mess up that God's word is still true today. It doesn't mess up the true theology of who God is. You know, it does, and theology just means the nature of God, the nature of where the origin, where that all came from. You know, it's the theology. And so I just encourage all of us, you know, and if you're like, man, he's really speaking to me, then good, you know, repent. Because godly sorrow brings us to repentance. The world is sour. Everything in the world, the world's promises, the world's pleasure, the world's power, uh, to feel good in mind, body, and spirit, but it's all unrighteous to God. But actually daily growing and learning and walking and living for the Lord and denying yourself that everything that Jesus said is all the Old Testament. This is what, honestly, any of those that were faithful, they still messed up, lived just like Christ. They were definitely not Christ Jesus because they weren't holy. They all fell short. Christ Jesus did. So on a lawn shell, call me. I'll talk to you. I'll talk to anyone. I just want to remind everybody and remind yourself, you know, where is your foundation really at? You know, and I'm just saying this, and I could be rebuked right now, but if you're going to church every Sunday and you haven't read the whole Bible, and if you want vacation every Sunday, I, I say you take a day off church and you get in the Word. I didn't say take a church off for a month. Get in the Word. Get to know who God is. Because slowly, 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 if we don't know who our God really is, it won't be taken away from God, but it'll be taken from us. Anyone else like to share a word, something you saw this Sunday? Yeah. Yeah, kind of to add this, talking about having a strong foundation, and I think 
you're paying attention, you can see that our country and God's people in general, churches in general, and even the Southern Baptists, things I've been seeing, and probably our, our church here locally, are going through a testing. We're going through a period of testing. And um, it's where you need a strong foundation and you've got to keep your eyes focused on the Word of God. That's where we're at. God's people are in all kinds of political to talk about some specific things that are going on in general, but I do know that there are churches in America that are being persecuted right now because they want to meet and the state they live in cannot let them meet or sing. That kind of thing. They're facing thousand dollar fine a day. They're threatening to, to jail an 81 year old pastor in a prominent church in California. That kind of thing. So there's persecution happening in the country right now. But I'm encouraged you know, you probably didn't see this article because I only caught it the back thing from some blog somewhere in Pennsylvania. Um, people couldn't go to church, but they could go to Walmart. So there was a church in inner city Walmart decided we'll have church at Walmart. And this video of the entire church gospel fire everything singing in the Walmart while people are shopping. It's kind of cool to see. There's a church in California where they are not shopping in Nevada. They close down the churches and the are open. So churches can meet in the seals. So they found other ways to try to, to meet and do what they got to do. But um, I don't know if they'll come here to us in Ohio, but my main point is, you know, stay focused on what we need to stay focused on. The enemy, that's really the enemy, not anybody who's power, the principalities, not just people who, you know, not go riot and do whatever they do out there in the streets, but we need to do what we do. day that we live in. Nothing is new under the sun, but sometimes we feel like, hey, I haven't seen that before. Uh, because maybe you have. Um, and sometimes it's just another uh, another way of uh, saying something that we have seen before, but it's another way. We've, we've had times before, for whatever reason, where we were told we could not worship. Our church was persecuted very early on when we were meeting uh, in our first location. And they eventually told us, you can't be here. And so we kind of have a history of overcoming that, and uh, I pray that we'll never stop. Um, but more importantly, I think, is that we have a firm foundation. That's a very good word. And I don't want to steal any thunder. Y'all started stepping on my sermon just a little bit. That's all right. Great God, we speak. All right, so we're going to pray together, and then we'll uh, uh, jump back into worship for just shortly, and, and then go to the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the God who gave us the Bible. You gave us everything we know, the history of um, men not having a relationship with you, the opportunity to have a relationship with you, how important it is to have a relationship with you. We see the great, what they call founding fathers of the faith, going through incredible trials, terrible things, things that, frankly, we would never want to go through, never have been through. And we see that they came out on top because they trusted in you. And so, Lord, we confess our need to you, our willingness at times to be swayed one way or the other. The truth is we live in a world that has a different definition of the word love, different from what you would define it as, different from who you are. 
and we have at times been swayed by that definition. And so uh, we all stand in need of your grace and your forgiveness, and we thank you that it's available through Jesus, your son. We are not a people to point fingers. We are not a people to condemn. We ought not to be a people to even have negative thoughts. We don't want to join the side of the accuser, or we we believe in the hope that you offer, the power that you have to cleanse sin and to set people back on the right path. We're praying that that power would be unveiled in a mighty way in our nation at every level, if there are levels, in politics, in society, in economics, in your church, on the street, in the workplace, and in the schools. We see developing persecution against your people, and we pray that you will give us peace and strength and wisdom to endure it, if it should come our way. And that we would join in with those who are being persecuted to help them, however. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, such as we know them to be. By their profession, they are doing what they, they think is right to live for the Lord. And we pray for them, every single one, that during this day, this day of evil, that we would stand, stand up for what's right. Stand in love, stand in mercy. On the foundation that is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We pray, Father, that you would carry with your people a little longer. Give us a little more time as you see fit to win people to you and do what we should have been doing all along. Thank you that you are patient. We pray for that lost soul that maybe tunes in to streaming today or listens to the podcast once it's up online. We pray for those who are being touched by the ministry of the Life Station and the encouraging word that's going out over uh, the One Call system. And, and more, we just pray that they would in earnest turn to you. That it not be about me or Brother Tony Tate or Brother Tony Brister or anybody that's in this room. Lord, that it would be about you wherever we may fall, that we would rise again in renewed strength, delivered by you from our life experience into our eternal life experience. We praise you for letting us worship you. It's kind of funny. We worship you for letting us worship you. We praise you for letting us pray to you. That's an amazing gift. We pray to you, Lord, asking for the future to be delivered into the hands of your people, but really that it would be in your hands. And we pray your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Jesus the Christ. Jesus who is God's son. Jesus who is God. We pray this in Jesus' name.
That's the last week's slide. He's working on getting my slide up there. Give him one second, because I didn't give it to him in time to put it in the PowerPoint. Is it coming up? I don't need it right this second, but if somebody can get it up here shortly, that would be good. All right, so anybody familiar with tag team wrestling? You've seen it probably once at least. I mean, not that you need to know the names of the people that are involved, whatever like that, but you understand the idea of tag team wrestling is somebody's wrestling in the ring, and then when they're ready, they get over to their partner, and they tag their partner in, and their partner comes in and wrestles in their place, right? And so when you're watching tag team wrestling, what you see happen a lot of times is it looks like the team is about to lose, the team that's wrestling is about to lose, and they'll slip free, and they'll manage to tag their partner, and their partner jumps in, and their partner's fresh, and the guy that was beating up on the other guy is not so fresh anymore, and so now it's a very much a reversal, okay? The word transition is the word that I would use to describe what happens when he tags his hand. He's on the ground, he's about to lose or whatever, and he will tag his partner, and the partner comes in, and they transition from one wrestler to another. Today begins a series, a sermon series, which if Jesus doesn't come again first, then we will get through the sermon series. We were joking about that on the way because the Lord has laid out for me what I think is about 15 weeks to get through this entire sermon series. And I said, well, there's a chance that Jesus may not come again in the next 15 weeks, but then there's also a chance that he may come again in the next 15 weeks, and we won't get to the end of the sermon series. That certainly would be fine. So the sermon series is entitled, The Transition. Okay, and if you look up on the screen here, you can see basically the topics and maybe the actual titles of each of those sermons, beginning with the transition, two ways it won't work. That's today's sermon, and then it's going to be it, which is referring to the transition, it, uh, a foundational framework, it, leaving in place a foundational framework, and then on to the various topics of what happens kind of, if you will, after the transition. So that's going to begin today. Uh, and the first one is two ways it won't work. Two ways it won't work. So if you grab your Bibles, I hope you will. Maybe say amen, hoot, holler with me, get a little bit excited as we go to Hebrews chapter 6. Is anybody there? We're going to all do it together at the same time. Everybody's trying to switch in their Bibles. The people online need to know that you're there. My wife went who and her throat is sore. She made a noise. Ready? It's Hebrews chapter 6. All right, good enough. I don't know what's going on. All right, so believe it or not, there are people in the room, those of you who are online, and they are now turning in their Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, okay? And I've already turned in my Bible to Hebrews chapter 6. So Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, describes the transition. Now, we're not going to dig deeply into these verses, but we're going to read them. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying, bless you, again, a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So in other words, there are, there are different levels of teachings, if you will, in Christian uh, life. And the writer of Hebrews is calling the people who he's writing to, and some argue, hence the name Hebrews, that he's writing to people who were formerly Jews who have become Christians. Um, so they have a Jewish background. Uh, that's possible. But in any case, he's, he's writing to folks and asking them to make the transition. He's saying that there is a time in which they should make this transition. Leaving behind the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, 
And then he says, not laying, again, a foundation of repentance and so on. He says what we ought not to be doing if we're actually making the transition. And I'm not going to break those down today because we'll actually look at them next week and break them down. But I do want you to see, saying, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. That is the transition. There is a moment in time where the author of Hebrews is asking us to make a transition. And this transition is desirable. Today, we're going to look at two ways the transition will not work, because that's largely what it's talking about. Right before that, he's talking about a way that it won't work. And then he says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So in other words, he said, based on it won't work that way, let us instead do it this way and move forward. But after this also is a way that he says it won't work. And that begins in verse 3. Okay? And so this is really kind of the first point of the day. One way this transition will not work. In verse 3. And this we shall do if God permits. Meaning we will make the transition. We will make the changeover from the elementary teachings to the deeper teachings, if you will. And deeper is not really the right word. I don't want to get ahead of myself. And this we shall do if God permits, if God allows it. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. Okay, so we've got to stop for one second right there. So listen to the qualifiers of these people. The people that he's talking about have been enlightened. They've heard it. They've figured it out. They get the gist of it. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. And so you could kind of think they're talking about the Holy Spirit, but then the next one is about the Holy Spirit. So this is probably talking about the presence of God and the effects of that. So God's Holy Spirit gifts, the gift of the church, the gifts in the church, and so on. But the heavenly gift could be literally salvation that they're talking about. And have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence. They've had an actual experience of the Holy Spirit. So this is talking about people who are saved. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in them at the time of their salvation or at some point in time in their early salvation days. So these are Christians who have tasted, who have understood. And then it goes on in verse 5. It says, and have tasted the good word of God. So in other words, they have had an experience with God's word. They have read it. They have seen it affect their lives. They've seen it speak to them directly. Okay? The taste of the good word of God. And the powers of the age to come. So the age to come is the age in which the church is fully present. Right? Remember this is written as the, at the birthing of the, uh, the church. And so it could be speaking of the new heaven and the new earth. Or it could be speaking of the church age in which we live. Either way would be fine because the powers that it's talking about are God's power through people to do things. Casting out evil spirits, healing people, but not only those things, right? Changing people, providing salvation, uh, progressive sanctification like we talked about a little bit last week. Growing to be more like Jesus, more holy and so on. The powers of the age to come. He says, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Okay? So in other words, if they have been there as Christians and the Holy Spirit has touched their lives, they've read the Word, they've understood the basis of Christianity, they have partaken uh, in the kingdom of God and seen God's power to do things, and then they fall away. Now, the New American Standard says fall away. 
And you'll notice if you're reading a slightly different translation that you may have a different word there. And whenever you're reading multiple translations and there's a different word that ought to cue you into, it doesn't translate all that well or uh, fully from the original language. So the best word that I could um, probably say here, or phrase I could probably use here to translate is to deviate from the way. And the way being Jesus, first and foremost, but the way that God would have us to go in Christ, right? And so in other words, if you know the way that you're supposed to go, and you've experienced these things, and then you have deviated from those things to fall away, it is to deviate off the path, right? So if you have deviated off the path, then it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. So right away, you know, I, I explained this to you last week, I chafe when I see words that are impossible. Um, but I, I understand that what he is saying is that as men and women of God, it is not possible for us to go to them and entreat them to repent. We cannot make them repent. They could choose to repent if God leads them to do that. God can make it possible for them to repent and so on. But it is impossible for us to renew them again to repentance. I can't tell you the number of times that I, I've seen sermons preach or people have preached sermons and somebody will repent and they will turn back to God. They'll come forward oftentimes in tears, their shirt's getting wet because they're, they're bawling like a baby because they realize that they've walked away from God and they're now turning back to God. Hear me now when I say very clearly that the preacher did not bring them to repentance. The person did not bring them to repentance. Their family, who should have been calling them to repentance, did not bring them to repentance. The church, who should have been calling them to repentance, did not bring them to repentance. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. However, they could repent and turn back to God, if, especially if they've had these experiences in the past. They already know everything that they needed to, go, to, needed to know to come back to God. And he says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Hear this now. When a person who has had that experience with God, who has become a Christian, had the Holy Spirit, read the Word, had basic understanding, who has been enlightened to the ways, has seen the power of God at work, and I submit to you that in my experience, I think probably everyone in this room has done so. And so, if you have done that and you walk away, no one can renew you to repentance because you have crucified to yourself again the Son of God and you have put Him to open shame. Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, made it possible for us to walk away from our sins and to experience Him personally and to have the Holy Spirit and to be enlightened and to have the heavenly gift and to be partakers of that power that is in the kingdom in the age to come. And then if you walk away from that, there is nothing else. You, you can repent and turn back to God. That's it. When the Bible says that we're made to be salt and light, and if we lose our saltiness, then what can be done? You can't return saltiness to salt that's lost its saltiness. It is useless except to be thrown out into the street and trampled on by men. But if the person would repent and turn back to God, they would be salt again. I taught it to the preschoolers this way. If you're salty and you stop being salty, I have a hard time recognizing you. That's the way it is with God. If you're salty and you stop being the salt that you're supposed to be, 
then God is just calling you back to be who you were supposed to be, and that's it. That's all there is. There's nothing more. There's not 10 steps to make you a healthy Christian. If you have deviated from the way after coming to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and experiencing the power of God and the Holy Spirit and the Word and been enlightened, if you have deviated from that, there is nothing except to turn back to God. And anyone who will not, no one can get them to. And if you would talk them into it, if you would teach them how seven ways until they finally latch onto it and do it, you'd always have to wonder in yourself, did they truly repent? Only they can know. And God, of course. And so repentance cannot be forced on anyone. No one can be won over to repentance if they have first experienced the kingdom of God and then deviated from it. That's what he's saying. Which is why he said, and this we shall do if God permits. Because here it is. You need God in order to be able to make this transition. Christian brother, you need God in order for you to be able to move from the fundamentals to the deeper teaching. You need God, Arden, you need God to be able to make this transition. Which means if you have not made the transition and you're enlightened and you've experienced the Holy Spirit and you're in the church and you've read the Word and you've seen God do something amazing, all of that were true, and yet you deviate from the path. The only way to get God to bring you back to the point of this transition being possible is to repent and turn to God. You have to recognize that you need God to make this transition. Let me just step aside from the text for just one moment and ask what it might look like if someone tries to make the transition without God. Do you see it? I see it. I see it happening. It's in the world. What happens is they take the word and they twist it. They manipulate something. They say, well, I have studied the language. I have looked at what it says. And I see that this is allowable in Christ. Or we have that, that church doctrine that says, I see that everybody is saved. Literally everybody. doesn't matter what they're doing or how it's happening. Everybody is saved. And so there is nothing that you have to do having been saved. Or I see that all things are permissible. They take that verse, all things are permissible. And so now you can literally do anything you want. And so I don't believe Christianity because Christianity just simply says, after you get saved, now you do anything you want. You can't lose your salvation or whatever. What it is is they take a verse or verses and they twist it out because they have not made the transition. Because they have deviated from the way, at least that's one possibility, we'll see the other in a moment. They have not made the transition. You and I need God to make the transition. Now, because we need God to make the transition does not mean we cannot still study the fundamentals, that we cannot still understand the very basics. There are people who are able to teach the ABCs of salvation at VBS every year and maybe even see somebody get saved because of that who have never been able to make the transition because they themselves, for one of these two reasons that we're studying today, don't have God's help to make that transition. If you've fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Not that they can never repent, but we can't do it for them. We can't entreat them to do it. They need to, we can try, but it really comes down to it's going to have to be their own recognition between them and God. They may even come to the point of feeling like they're unsaved and walking away from the basic fundamentals of the faith. If they can't make the transition and the teaching is too tough for them, they may go, oh man, I never can quite understand. Before I got saved, I couldn't understand the book of Daniel. I read it through chapter 9. 
And it's prose. It's a story. And I was reading. I literally could not understand what was happening. But then after I got saved and God was helping me, then I could understand the basics of it. You need God's help to make this transition. And the writer of Hebrews is giving room that possibly God will not help you make this transition because you have deviated from the way that was set before you. Verse 7 says... For ground, and he's going to make an argument from it now. He says, for ground, that's usually when you see a for, it's a because. In this case, it's more like, a, this is why we know this is true, or whatever. Ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it, and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is, it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. In other words, if the ground receives the rain, and it begins to produce crops, and all things are going right, then God speaks well of that ground. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. And so in other words, he's saying, so if you are ground and you refuse to make the transition, you're not able because you don't have the help of God, because you have not given God his due, because you're not, you've deviate, deviated from the way, and so God is not willing to make, bless you, not willing to make that transition, not willing to help you make that transition, then you could be in danger of being ground that does not produce that hundredfold, that, that great fruit and whatever, but rather producing thorns and thistles. Again, what could that look like? Well, it's people who live in a way that is contrary to biblical and yet claim to be a Christian. That way is worthless and close to being burned, and it ends up being burned. <clears throat> and I submit to you that is unless that person repents. Hear me. God's help is needed. And I submit to you that, that, that the author of Hebrews is saying this is a way that you can know God will not help. God will not help you go with clarity, with success, with power to deeper teachings in Christianity if you have walked away from the way. I've seen it in many, many essays and writings and so on for people to argue that Many people who claim to be the church actually are not saved. One of my uh, Christian brothers who, whom I've met in person, um, but I don't know him well, I wouldn't call him a friend, but he professes to be a follower of Christ, are, has argued that as many as 96% of the people who sit in church, who serve in church, who are pastors and deacons and whatever, he didn't, he didn't isolate certain titles or whatever, it's 96%, he said, as many as 96%, are not saved. But when I read the parable of the four soils, the parable that, uh, where the farmer's going out to sow seed and some falls on the side of the road, you know, and it's plucked by the enemy before it can, and Jesus explains that, he says that the, the seed is the word of God. And he describes the four places as people who have encountered the word. And when you mesh that parable up with this text, the people that are on the road, the seed fell on the road, they probably didn't get saved. It says the enemy comes and snatches it up before it can bear any fruit, before there's any roots, before any growth begins to happen. So those people are people that heard the gospel and didn't get saved. But everybody else that's in the parable is probably people who got saved. The people who the seed fell on thorny soil, the people who the seed fell on rocky soil, and the people the seed fell on good soil, all of those people are people who received the word it, the one says, where it fell on rocky soil, they receive the word with gratitude. They're super excited to be saved. And they go and they run really fast. And yet, ultimately, they die out because they never got any roots in Christ. 
I submit to you that those are people described here in Hebrews as people who couldn't make the transition. They couldn't let God take them deeply because instead of walking the way, they were super excited to be saved or doing all kinds of things, but it wasn't godly. <clears throat> they deviated from the path. There's those who are amongst the thorns. The thorns grows up and chokes out the fruit. So they actually started to have fruit. So we know that they were saved because they meet that description. They probably had the Holy Spirit. They were doing things. They were acting in their gifting. They were making efforts. Right? We know they were almost certainly saved, but the cares of this world, the thorns, come up and choke out their growth, and it's gone. And so both of those two pieces of ground, the, the writer of Hebrews says, are in, in danger of being burned doesn't say that they'll never make it into heaven, but they're in danger of being cleansed with fire. And so, I submit to you that in the parable of the four soils, three of the four are probably saved. And so I beg to differ with my friend who says that maybe 96% of the people who profess to be Christians aren't even saved. Some people say 70%. I don't know what the number is. I'm sure it's a lot higher than we would like it to be. Because there were people in the church that I was in when I first got saved who I saw and they looked like Christians and they act like Christians and they sang in the choir and whatever. And it's not uncommon for people to do that, to look like Christians and then to later realize, look, I've really never given my life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have not been saved. So it's not uncommon. So the number is probably much higher than we would like it to be. But I don't think it's 96%. Actually, what I think is more likely to be true is that there is a really large number of people who profess the name of Christ, who have called upon the name of the Lord, who will not ultimately be put to shame, Romans 10, 9, and 10, but at the same time, they have not been able to make the transition because they have deviated from the way. They are not walking with Christ. If Jesus were right next to them or in them and actively working with them to advance the kingdom of God, and they said, Jesus, I don't understand this, he would explain it to them. He would make sure they understood and they would get it. I submit to you that there are those who do not understand the parable of the four soils. And what did Jesus say about that parable as he explained it to the disciples? He said, if you can't, explain, if you can't understand that parable, how will you understand any parable at all? What was he saying? He was saying there is a transition that has to be made. You have to first get the basics of Christianity and become Christian and get the Holy Spirit and begin to serve and then make the transition. That's what Jesus was saying. And people were unwilling to make the transition. If I can step aside from the text again for a moment, I submit to you the reason is because the way can at times be challenging. It can be hard. It can be difficult. It can even kill you. It killed the man Jesus. And so did it most of the, of the apostles were persecuted for their faith unto death. What I'm saying to you is God understands that the way gets difficult and yet he calls you to walk the way with him and if you walk the way with him then there is a good possibility that he will permit or even carry you through this transition that the writer of Hebrews is talking about and I submit to you Jesus talked about it as well. God's help is needed to make the transition and this is a subgroup that he is saying likely will not have that help. Let me read it again real quick. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, enlightened, I understand, have tasted of the heavenly gift, oh, God is good, have 
been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. I have been cleansed, sealed, regenerated, renewed. The Holy Spirit is in me. I've got His gifting. I've tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come. When these have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. There is a subgroup of Christians who crucify again Jesus. It is the greatest tragedy, greater than the original crucifixion. It is the greatest tragedy that exists, is that there is a subgroup of followers of Jesus who crucify him again. And they cannot be brought to repentance. Only they can repent. Only they can repent and they can hear it from God and they have heard it from God. I submit to you that if they have been convicted by the Holy Spirit to repent of their sin and they will not, then nothing you say to them is going to change their mind. If the power of God that they have firsthand experienced testifying to them that they need to repent isn't going to change their mind, I submit to you that you are not either. Now, you say, well, how could I know? How could I know if I have walked away from the way? So, well, there's two things. First of all, You have a requirement, a responsibility, and it says that you have an understanding. You have a basic understanding of the Word of God. That's in there. You have experienced the Word of God. And so you should have a basic understanding that something or things that you have chosen to do or continue to choose to do does not line up with God's Word. And if it does not line up with God's Word, if you're not living the Word of God, then you are not walking with Jesus. Because what did Jesus do every single day of his life and has always done for eternity before he was born as a human and after? He did what he saw his Father doing. You are not walking with Jesus if you are not walking according to the word. And so you have that. You don't need anybody else. You literally do not need anyone to tell you because you have the Holy Spirit enough to understand that you can read it and see and be convicted of your sin. Matthew 18 also describes accountability. And just the same as no brother can turn you to repentance if you have walked out of the way, when a brother comes to you to explain your sin, you have the opportunity to go, hey, I get that. I've been enlightened. and I see how that doesn't line up. It doesn't line up with the word and so on. And you can choose to repent. It will not be your brother causing you to repent, but you can choose to repent at the impetus of him reminding you that you have walked away from the way. That's why Matthew 18. That's why the church. That's why leaders, teachers, apostles. That's why other giftings and so on. It's all that someone who has walked away from the way after coming to the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ can come back to repentance. Not to be brought back, but can choose God over the way that they're currently going. This is a subgroup of Christians who have crucified the Lord Jesus Christ again and put him to shame. What number is that? I don't know, but one is too many. I will not be one. I hope I will repent every time I think I am wandering off the way. I submit to you, if you're asking yourself now, or if you've ever asked yourself, is what I'm doing right now off the way? It probably is. If you have to ask, it probably is. Now, if you went to your word, to your Bible, and you read it thoroughly and studied it and found a place where, it is, where what you were doing was authored, allowed, etc., then it probably isn't. And I get it that there's a gray area where you kind of have to figure it out. And each person 
with the Holy Spirit ministry that's inside them has to figure out whether certain things are sin or not. But be aware, amongst Christians, there is a subgroup that has crucified again the Lord and put Him to shame because of their sin. And they need to repent. God is calling on them to repent. They're choosing not to. And literally no one can do it for them. We need God's help to make the transition. If they make it or try to make it without God, they will invent whole new ways of living outside God's will. There is a second way that will not work. Another way. The second point, and, and this is the only other point, and then the conclusion of today's sermon. Another way it won't work. And it actually comes before the transition point where it says, therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. The second way that we're going to talk about today comes before that, and it begins in 5.11. He's been talking about Jesus, about the amazingness of our high priest. And he says, concerning him, talking about Jesus, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. So he's using this analogy of milk to be the simple fundamental teachings of the Bible. And he's saying certain people have become accustomed to only that. And they're not accustomed to its opposite, which is the word of righteousness. They're not accustomed because that person who only drinks milk from the word is as a babe. One more verse. But solid food, so this would be that deeper teaching that happens after the transition, solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And so we see that the second way that it just won't work is to be dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. Oh, I was thinking about that, and the Lord popped in illustration after illustration after illustration after illustration. And I started to realize that maybe it's entirely possible that many of us are dull of hearing. Maybe at times I am dull of hearing. I hope I, I, I hope I repent when I discover that to be true. I'm going to pick on a couple of people, not by name, but I was talking to a brother of mine. Talked to him for about uh, 45 seconds or so. And then finally he said, uh, if you're talking to me, I'm not, hearing a, I'm not hearing you. And he took his Bluetooth out of his ear. Nothing wrong with that because he, I hadn't told him I was going to be talking to him or whatever. But he was listening to his music and he wasn't hearing what I was saying. Sometimes we're dull of hearing because we're hearing something else. It may not even be sin, the other thing that you're hearing. You understand me? It doesn't have to be wrong the other thing that you're hearing. You might be listening to something else other than what it is that you're supposed to be listening to. You might be playing a video game on your phone during the sermon, for example. You might have stayed up too late and you might have a hard time focusing, so you're thinking about other things. Your ear, if you will, the ear that hears and translates and puts it all to work, is dull because of whatever circumstance that you've allowed to exist in your life 
beginning with, you might be hearing something else. I run role-playing games. It's one of the things I do for the Christian games team here, and actually I've been doing it all the way since before I was saved. And, and uh, we try to make it a very Christian thing, an outreach and tell people about Jesus and things like that. Um, and people will sit at the table, and when it's, quote, not their turn, unquote, they will do something else. And then I'll begin talking to them, and I'm talking to them three, four sentences in, and I realize they don't hear me. They don't understand a word I'm saying. And I have to go back and repeat everything I said, three or four sentences. Because we get dull of hearing sometimes because we think no one's talking to us. It's not important right now. I had a friend of mine years ago, uh, and we tell this joke in our gaming group for years, and so I'll, I'll share it with you now because he wouldn't mind. We're sitting at the table amongst our five friends, and we're playing a game, and one of my friends is talking to him for about 30 seconds, and he's not hearing a word he's saying, and it, was, it became evident to us that he had fallen asleep sitting at the table like this, and he's sleeping. And as we're all looking at him, realizing he's not hearing, he sort of snored a little bit, and we all went, he's asleep. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm not asleep. And, he's, and they said, well, then why didn't you answer? And he said, because I didn't think it was important. Now, we all know he was sleeping. He, he was snoring. He literally snored while he was sleeping. We know he was sleeping. One time, and he had a little bit of a sleep, he had sleep apnea, a little bit of sleep disorder, and he fell asleep on a fairly regular basis. And one time we were playing at my friend James's house, and he was leaning against the door jam, and somebody was talking to him, and he wasn't answering, and said, I think he's asleep. And just at that moment, he kind of had a little start, and he fell off the door jam and fell into the kitchen. He had a little sleep disorder. We all knew he was sleeping. But his excuse for why he wasn't hearing wasn't that he was sleeping. It was that he didn't think it was important. How many times have you sat under a teaching? Have you read your Bible or whatever? And you go, or you didn't read your Bible because you didn't think it was important. Listen to me. It's important. It's so important that you major in the minors so that you can eventually make the transition and get to something. Believe me, this is a fact. You and I, we ain't seen nothing yet. I've been to... Bible studies for 20 plus years. I taught Sunday school, not even knowing I was supposed to read the story before I showed up that day. I went to Bible college, got a degree, went to seminary, got a degree, and I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that this much I know, I don't know anything yet. There is so much more. And in any given doctrine, any given point, the word, God could want to take you. What if God wants to save your life by a new understanding of Romans 1.16 today, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And today, you're, you're going to be on the Bible looking at that verse, and you're going to go, hmm, that means something new and different. And you're going to stay there for just an extra minute and a half contemplating what it means to not be ashamed of something. The Bible says meditate. And actually, in the Old Testament, there are more promises about God doing powerful things in people's lives when they meditate on the Word of God, then there are promises for God doing powerful things when people pray. Not so in the New Testament. Praying in the name of Jesus is everything, right? But in the Old Testament, if you meditate on God's Word, something happens. And so you can spend 45 seconds thinking about what it means to not be ashamed, and you get in your car 45 seconds later and wind up not getting hit by a truck. It's all important. We're dull of hearing because we're listening to something else. We're dull of hearing because we think it's not important. We're dull of hearing because we've allowed other factors in our lives to creep up and become important. I've got to think about this other thing. No, you actually don't. 
I can't read my Bible right now because I've got to get to work. Listen to me. If you've not read your Bible that way that day yet, and you think you have to go to work, and God wants you to read your Bible, you don't have to go to work. You say, yes, I do. I'll lose my income. Yeah, and if you lose your income, you'll get another one. Everything that God is doing is the tenth amount of importance. Don't you understand that at some point in time, the horn will sound and everyone will hear it. And yet, there will be two people working in the field. Two people working side by side in the field and one of them will get to go and one of them will not. What happens if the horn blows and you're dull of hearing? What happens if the horn blows and you go, oh, I think I heard something. Instead of, yes, Jesus, here I come. Yes, Jesus, take me now. Yes, I'm ready. And before you're... Your kids grow up, or before you, you get to finally buy that car you're saving for, before the things of this, and the weeds grow up, the cares of this world choke out the fruit of the plants is one of the parable, one of the parts of the parable that Jesus told. We have to decide that first and foremost is God, His way, otherwise we'll fall in subgroup one, and what He's saying to us, or we will fall in subgroup two, and you will not make the transition. And then you will be won over by some worldly teaching that makes you think it's okay to live some way that is not right by God, and you will crucify Him again and put Him to shame, and then there will be no one to help you make the transition. You will be stuck right where you are. And I submit to you that there's a lot of folks there, dull of hearing. These folks who are dull of hearing, he says, talking to the, the audience of Hebrews, if it was a he, I should say the writer of Hebrews may have been a she, right? So the writer of Hebrews should be teachers by now. I, I'm here to tell you, as I look around this room, and I'm including myself in this, you should all be teachers by now. You remember Acts 6? When they called the deacons so the apostles could focus on the business of prayer and the word? All of those guys who were called? All of them. Christians, six months. Because it was less than six months after the Pentecost. These are people who have touched, been touched by the Holy Spirit. That didn't happen until the Pentecost. So all the first deacons were six months. And now we've got churches that say, like, oh, you want to come be a deacon, or you got to come, if you want to come serve in the church, or be a team leader, or be a lead out in a ministry, or, or you want to do anything significant, you have to be in the church for months or years or decades before they'll let you do anything. You should be teaching the Word of God. Paul wrote it this way. He said that, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, wait for it, the ministry of reconciliation. Now I understand, you don't need to teach the fundamental teachings of God to people who already understood the fundamental teachings of God and walked away from the Lord, because they're not going to listen anyway. I get it, there is a place to not cast your pearls before swine, and so on. Your atheist friend who says he doesn't want to hear it, you don't have to teach him, although you can still teach him by example. But everybody that doesn't know the Lord should be an audience for you to explain whatever it is you know. We have the personal trainer program, which so far, frankly, overall, has pretty much been a flop because of two reasons. Because one, people ask for a personal trainer and they don't follow through. They don't want to do it. Why? Because the cares of the world choke it out? I'm not going to say why. I don't know why. 
but pe- a lot of people don't follow through and don't do it. And then there's adults that are assigned a pers- to be a personal trainer to somebody who needs it, and they don't hound them. They don't chase them down. So, well, they want to know about Jesus. I shouldn't have to chase them down. Yes, you should, because by now, you should be a teacher. Now, I understand. I totally get it. There is a spiritual gift. I'm not talking about Romans 12, teacher, right? But not since... Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching. I'm not talking about that, or he who exhorts in his exhortation. I'm not saying that we should all have the spiritual gift of teaching. I am saying that we all must have the spiritual activity of reconciliation. Most of us are living from Tuesday to Sunday, or let's be really realistic, from Sunday to Sunday, barely doing anything at all for God. And that's ridiculous. You don't get to get on the phone. You don't get to get on the TV. You don't get to sit in your living room. You don't get to sit on the street, on your job, or at school without mentioning Jesus. You don't get to do that. Because that's Jesus. And literally, he's the one who died for you. And literally, he's the only way that people get to go to heaven. And people are dying from the disease that is sin. They're dying and separated from God. And they won't come to him because no one's telling them what they need to to know. Because the teachers of the kingdom of God are dull of hearing and refuse to teach. If you come to sermon on Sunday and you hear something and you say, Hey, that's good, but I don't really think... I have to repent for that. I want you to understand, by the way, that I've only ever in my entire time preaching ever preached about two sermons that didn't require me to repent before I could preach them. Before you listen to my sermon and think you don't need to repent today, I want you to understand I already repented when I wrote this sermon. In fact, I repented under both points because I realized that I have been dull of hearing, that I have not been focused on the way that I am to be walking that it's entirely possible that I am a Christian who has deviated from the way and therefore God will not take me deeper. Have you ever read the Word of God and started going, you know, it's kind of, you know, I'm not excited about that. I'm not really excited about it. I'm not really excited about just reading it. They say, just read it. But every time I just read it, it's just kind of boring. Where do you think that comes from? The Word of God is living. It's not boring. It's powerful. If you read it and you're bored, it's because you're dull of hearing. Because you're not meditating, you're not asking me, what does that phrase mean? What does that word mean? How is this different? What am I supposed to do about that? If you just take the basic three points of what does it say, what does it mean, and what am I supposed to do about it, then every single verse of the Bible will change you every single day you read it. Because you'll go one step deeper, you'll go one step differently, you'll have to approach things differently. The silly Bible verse that comes from version every day on the Bible app, every single day, that verse changes my direction for the day, without exception. God is alive. His word is alive, and he's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. And if you're not hearing from him every single day, then don't think it's because he's not speaking, because he is. And so if you hear something and you go, I don't quite think I'm supposed to adjust to that, that's not really for me, then who do you think it's for? Well, I'll tell you who it's for. Literally anyone who will listen to you, get on the phone. Literally anyone who might be affected by it. Call your mother, call your brother, call your children. Sit down at the dinner table with your family. Talk about what you've learned in the Word. You should be teachers. He says it. The author of Hebrews says it. We should be teachers. We've been Christians long enough. Or do we fit into one of these two subgroups? Is that actually true? 
notice that those who fit into this second subgroup are also described by some other adjectives in here. He says they are without skill. In other words, when someone says to them, you know, I was wondering whether or not I should do this. They don't have a Bible verse for it. Now, that's not really fair because you don't have to have a reference. I was talking with a preschooler this last week, just a few days ago. I take that back. They're not in preschool anymore. But uh, I was talking with a young elementary student uh, just this last week, and I was explaining about how something was happening in the world. And they told me the biblical teaching on that topic. They didn't know the verse. They didn't know the reference. But they knew what the Bible says about it. And they were from our church. You should know the answer. You may not know the reference. And I know that people are like, oh, it's painful you know, uh, for me to know the reference all the time and that kind of thing. But you should know what it basically says. If you're beating yourself up over the references, quit. They didn't even have them. That, that was invented later. If you're beating yourself up over the chapters or the verse or what book it's in, stop. Know the teaching as if it is your lifeblood. And bring it. When someone comes to you, well, I just did this. Okay? Reference your catalog of what you know in Scripture and teach. Everything, every time somebody asks you a question is a teachable moment. If they ask you what you like, what's your favorite candy bar? That's a teachable moment. You're like, well, you could, I'll just tell them what my favorite candy bar is. I'm simple. I'm plain. They don't want to hear anything else than that. How do you know they don't want to hear? Why are they asking what your favorite candy bar is? How do you know they don't want to hear? Are they saved? Do you know if they're saved? The next thing you say might not be John 3.16, but it ought to be something a little more spiritual. You know, you say something like, oh, my favorite candy bar is this, and I am grateful that we live in a country where we can choose favorites like that. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. So, and, and that's an example of how people have free will. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. It is. I, th I think about free will a lot. And next thing you know, you might actually be in a spiritual conversation with somebody. But we're so busy, and we've become dull of hearing, and we're not teaching, and we're without skill. Christians need to develop skill, and the only way to do that is what he says, which is by practice. People are immature. I wanted to, in fact, I'm just going to go ahead and add the next one. Failing to discern good and evil. I, um, can't tell you the number of times I preached a sermon. And, I, and I'll say, you know, I'll say right now, God loves us. And when I say God won't help you make the transition, God desires nothing more than to help you make the transition. He's not being stingy with his time. He's not mad at you. But he knows you can't go there. So he keeps you in the shallow waters. An old song I used to love back in the 80s, to draw me in the shallow waters before I get in too deep. God is brilliant enough and loving enough to keep you in the shallow waters if that's all you can handle. But someone will walk out of here today and they'll say, Pastor Dan is a jerk. Pastor Dan talked about sin. Some, I had somebody comment last week about how I talked about hell. The reality of hell. The, some people are going to go to hell. But I don't like to see people go to hell, but they're going to go anyway. And I had, there are people that had problems with that because they are not able to discern good or evil. They can't see what's good and what's evil. They can't discern it and they can't grade it. You get people who say, judge not lest you be judged. We are called to judge good and evil. When you've become a more mature Christian, you will be able to judge what is good and what is evil. And when someone speaks to you of evil, you will not only not accept it, you will not represent it, you will not support it, and you will certainly not become it. And that's a problem that we have today because in representing 
are in supposedly resisting certain evils, we're representing them. A few weeks ago, I had a conversation with a, a Christian man who was reposting basically what was discouraging posts or sinful posts on Facebook and then commenting against them. So they say, I can't believe this is happening or this is wrong or this is not godly or things like that, commenting against them. But reposting the post to show the discouraging or evil thing and then posting against it. So that now his 300, his 600, his 900, his 2,000 followers all saw that too. So the discouraging evil was presented to them. And I said, don't do that. Instead, present something that's good. Present something that might be the exact opposite that's godly. If you see somebody burning the American flag and you're against burning the American flag, then instead of posting a picture of somebody burning the American flag, post a picture of somebody saluting the American flag or something like that. That's how we resist. We present the good. Romans 12, 21. Overcome, do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These folks who are dull of hearing and have not become teachers when they should are without skill, immature, failing to discern good or evil. And you know what the, problem with fail, the biggest problem with failing to discern good or evil is? Before you know it, you've done it. And then you're off the way. And then you've crucified Jesus again and brought him to public shame. You say, no, no, I'll keep my sin quiet. Nobody knows what I'm up to. We may not know what you're up to, but everyone can see what you're not up to. That it's not about Jesus. That you're not going out of your way to teach the word. That you're not drawing wisdom from your understanding. When you're being left alone to your own devices, that may well be someone else in sin because they're not bringing you to accountability. Matthew 18, they're not calling you out. But just realize, it's really just you that can repent. No one can make you do that. No one can talk you into it. It's just you. We're in the conclusion now. There is hope for embracing the transition. I said there are two ways that it won't work. It will not work if you are, if you have left the way. I'm not saying you'll lose your salvation, but you cannot go deeper. You cannot learn more. You cannot live the things that really free a person up in God. You cannot live on the other side of the transition if you've left the way because God's help is needed to make the transition. Every time we need to make the transition. Also, you can't do it or you won't do it if you're dull of hearing. You should be teachers, at least in the ministry of reconciliation, teaching the basic things of Christianity. Not as a teacher who's spirit gifted to teach, but as a teacher who teaches the basics of what you know. You should be doing that. But there are those who are dull of hearing, who remain without skill. They're immature, failing to discern good or evil. They'll even accept it and say, well, it's not my problem. I don't have to stand up against it. They'll even represent it. You know what so-and-so said? I don't agree with them, but you know what they said? They'll even support it. Yeah, I know that's happening, but I, I'm not going to do anything about it. They'll even become it. And then they too are off the way and have not God's help with the transition. But there is hope in this is the final verses of the day. In Hebrews 6, 9-12, through 12, it says, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, because all of us might debate whether we are like that. He says, We are convinced of better things concerning you, the author of Hebrews does to his audience, and things that accompany salvation. Are the things in your life that accompany salvation? 
Though we are speaking in this way to challenge you, you could add right there, for because God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Are you ministering? Are you serving? Are you caring about the church, the other Christians in your life? If you are, if you have and you are, then you can be fairly sure that God has not forgotten that. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. That means get working, work hard, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's where we don't quit. That's where we don't give up. That's where we go on. It's all post-transition. There's so many young Christians who talk a mighty word about living for God and doing what God would have them do and, and so on. And then when their Achilles heel, when their chink in their armor is found, when they find something that gets under their skin or something they'd rather spend their time on than spending it on God or learning or growing, when it's like that, they become dull of hearing or they get off the way and they never make the transition doesn't mean they're not saved. They need to repent and turn back to God. But it's something I can't do for you and you can't do it for anybody else. But you can do it for yourself. Especially if you're saved and in that situation, you can, for yourself, choose to turn back to God and say, God, I am fully depending on you to take me through the transition. I've been close. I'll use this final illustration and I'll be through. Have you ever heard of terminal velocity. Ever hear that word? And there's a, I think there's a movie called that, or probably a book series, or whatever, but that's not what I'm talking about. It's like the scientific principle of terminal velocity. When an object falls from any height, it speeds up at 32 feet per second per second. So every second it travels, it adds 32 feet to its previous speed. So if it has fallen for five seconds, you could calculate very quickly by 32 plus 32 plus 32 plus 32, you can very quickly calculate how fast it's falling. Except when it gets close to what's called terminal velocity. After falling so far, an object will only fall so fast. It never will fall faster. Not a bowling ball or a truck or a jet falling out of the sky or a feather. If it ever reaches this maximum velocity of an object falling inside the Earth's atmosphere, that's as fast as it will ever fall. Except guess what? no object ever reaches terminal velocity. So you say, well then, shouldn't terminal velocity actually be a little less so that the objects could reach terminal velocity? Well, this is the way it works. As it nears terminal velocity, the amount of acceleration is a little less, and a little less, and a little less. And when it's so close to terminal velocity, the amount of acceleration is so infinitesimally small that it's hard to measure. As you approach terminal velocity, you never actually arrive there. But eventually, the amount of difference between the speed and terminal velocity is literally infinitesimally small. It is so small that it could not be measured. But we know scientifically that it's not terminal velocity. You see? It's an infinitesimally small space between, so it would be like, 0 0.0 times, 0 0.01 times uh, 10 to the 
infinite power. But there theoretically is a space in between the speed, but we don't know what it is. So that's why terminal velocity is what it is. That is the maximum speed at which a thing can fall. This is what people do. They get closer and closer to making the transition. They even look ahead and leap to the other side of the transition. They will have people teach them a deep teaching, something more significant from the other side of the transition, and they will try to add that to their life. They will become legalistic. Think about the Sabbath being, well, if you find a pin in the bottom of your garment at the end of the Sabbath, you worked all day, and so now you have to repent and be cleansed because you worked carrying around that pin. See, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. They couldn't make the transition. But we can, in Christ, with the help of God's Holy Spirit, we can make the transition. So there's terminal velocity. As you get closer and closer to the transition, you start thinking, this is getting harder. This is a little bit more confusing. I'm not quite understanding. That's deep. He's going too long. That's too much. When I read that, I don't quite understand it, whatever. And you're, there's work to be done. He said, be diligent. Do the work. Don't be sluggish. Don't go, oh, man, this is hard. It's hard for me to understand. It's hard for me to get there. Right? I, I tried three times to share Jesus with somebody, and nobody would hear it. And so I'm just going to quit. I'm just not going to do that now. Oh, well, this, problem, this person probably won't want to hear it either. You know, so, but if somebody comes and they specifically ask me, what must I do to be saved? I'll explain it to them, I'm sure. But I'm not going to talk to this person about it because they're too much work. And so on. We come up with all, the closer you get, the more active the enemy gets, the more reasons you get, the more the resistance gets, and the space is infinitesimally small, but you can't make the leap. You can't get across. It's the same as it was before you got saved. I can't save you. You can't save you. It says move away from the dead works that provide salvation. No works will ever save you. You have to submit yourself to God and say, God, I want to allow you to take me beyond the transition. But there are two ways it won't work. One way is if you're deviating off the course of what you know. Hold on to that which you have already attained, Paul writes. Do what you know to do and call out to God for his support in crossing the transition. The other way is if you become dullness of hearing, dull of hearing, and there's a lot of ways you can get there. Maybe you're busy listening to something else. Maybe your mind is off. Maybe you're busy because you're, you're working too much, and so you're not setting aside any time in his word. Or maybe you're busy because you've got a sick family member. Or maybe you're busy because you're almost beating that video game. Or maybe you're busy because your, your favorite hobby just is only available during the summer, and you want to be busy right now doing that because in the winter you'll have more time to study. Or don't be dull of hearing. Be a teacher, be mature in your faith, be growing. You're ready. Literally no one can stop you. If God is for us, who can be against us? You say, but I can't quite get there. You can't in your own strength. And if God won't help you, these are the two reasons why that may be true. I'm asking you today, don't be dull of hearing. Focus on God's word. Focus on what God wants for you. You are not unredeemable. He can help you. He can take you beyond your wildest dreams. We ain't seen nothing yet. We're still slugging it out in the pits. And it's not supposed to be like that. You should read God's word and want to ask a million questions about just a few verses. And then ask those questions and study and figure out what they mean. Be fervent, on fire.
excited, not sluggish, not laid back. Take the single thing that you do in your life right now with the most diligence, with the most hard work. Is it spend time with a friend, spend time with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, play a game, do work, pay your bills, support your kid, whatever. Whatever, just take the single thing that you do with all the aggressiveness that you do anything and do Jesus and his word a little more than that. Start there. And soon you'll find yourself not dull of hearing. Soon you'll find yourself maturing in the faith and teaching others the basics of Christianity. You don't have to teach them the deep stuff. They're not ready for it anyway. But then you'll find somebody who is ready and you and them will come together and you'll be super excited to talk about things that you're seeing that are deep. They're affecting you. And some days you're going to be brokenhearted about it because some days it really hurts. But at least then you'll know you've made the transition. Let's pray together briefly and then we'll be through. God in heaven, this is just the beginning. And today even, we're only just getting an inkling of what the other side of the transition looks like. And the author of Hebrews does get pretty specific about it before we're through. But I think it would have been foolish to try to go there and understand those, those things without being willing that you should help us, without desiring to make that transition while we were still off the way or dull of hearing. For anyone that's in this room right now, Lord, who needs to repent and turn to you in earnest and, and let you be the most important thing in their life, to hear from your word on a regular basis how to win this fight we call life. I can't win them, God. I can't entreat them. I, I can't persuade them. But between you and them, it can be done. convicted me soundly. I pray, Lord, that we would all be convicted. I pray that your Holy Spirit, which always is there to convict men, would convict us. And I know that the primary conviction is on all men, which means that it's for non-believers too. And then the Holy Spirit, once he comes and takes up residence in us, sometimes it seems like this, he speaks softer, or he's more gentle with us because he loves us and he knows that we have that ongoing relationship with him. And when he speaks softer, Lord, let us decide to lean in and listen harder. Father, for the one who's here today who's not with you're agitated by what I'm saying or refusing the tendency of your call of your Holy Spirit. Lord, rebuke the evil spirits that have plagued their mind. Rebuke the feelings of inadequacy and let them know that they are an amazing creation. That they belong to you. That they belong free. That they belong a leader and a teacher belong hopeful 
ultimately they belong with you for an eternity. Help them find a way to reflect that in their lives today. God, I'm so sad for the church to believe that whether my friend is right, 96% of the people in the church that profess to be saved aren't saved, or more likely, I think, by reading your word, that a much lower number, but way too high, is not actually saved. But then a very high number of folks are unwilling to make the transition, unwilling to go deep, unwilling to listen to God. We even have people who teach that as long as you're saved, you don't have to listen to God. We've even had people who teach that you shouldn't read your Bible because you can't understand it anyway, that it takes a learned man to explain it to you. And that's all a bunch of hogwash. Your word calls us and we want to answer. Help the Father. There's somebody here that's hiding their secret sin. It's a thing nobody knows about it. Lord, let them be set free today. There's somebody here who would say, yeah, I do recognize the Bible is an important book, and I think I know enough, or I just haven't really been dedicating my time because it's been busy and other things are going on. Lord, put it in their heart, the importance of listening to you. put it in my heart. I can so often get busy doing what you'd have me to do. Or I think I'm doing what you'd have me to do. Then it seems like there's not enough time. And a couple of times lately when I've really focused on your word or spent more time with you, it seems like there's more time, not less, to do the other things. Perhaps we should learn something from the feeding of the 5,000. There is enough. There is more than enough. Help us, Father. As we go out to this, from this place, the team leader meeting today, as people spend time with their families and their children, or wherever they go, whatever they do, let it ring in our ears that it's been long enough. We should be teachers should hear from you and then disseminate the truth that we discover at every opportunity. Lord, we pray a special blessing at the closing of our service today on our members who are sick. We have a couple. We don't know if it's coronavirus or something else. More likely it's something else, but we're going to put it in your hands. Heal them, Lord. We have a couple who have ongoing health concerns, are struggling to be strong, struggling to do the things that they need to do. And they're also having trouble getting out because of the circumstances. I pray, Lord, that you'll bless them, strengthen them, walk with them during these trying times. Father, we pray for our country, for our government, that supposedly we elected, and we know that uh, barely double-digit people come out to vote a lot of times, and so, as much as that's a shame, um, these are the people that you put in office, and so we pray for them, Lord. Pray for you, give them wisdom. Give them diligence. Pray that they will not be dull of hearing. 
So we certainly don't need that. Well, I'm sure it's the case sometimes. We pray for those folks who are trying to be righteous, trying to do the right thing, and they're vexed in their righteous soul by what they see going on in the world all around them. It's, it's just about to drive them nuts. We pray, Lord, that you'll give them peace of mind to listen to you instead of the racket that the world is creating right now. Go with us as we go. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This concludes our services today. I would encourage you, I cannot talk you into it, but I would encourage you, if you know you need to repent, then do that and turn unto the Lord. And uh, if you have already done so, then go and teach anyone who will listen. You certainly need to be taught.